Welcome to A Load of BS, the behavioural science podcast with me, Daniel Ross. Many of you have listened to parts one and two of my interview with Rory Sutherland, adman, author and BS aficionado. This is a final treat from Rory, the bonus episode in which Rory shares his story of airport arrest and a spine-tingling 24 hours in jail in Qatar. Listen in to this shorter-than-usual episode to find out why he was arrested, why his cravat was confiscated, alongside riffs on solving defects in Amazon Prime delivery and Rory's self-invented and Beatles-inspired SI unit for regret. As a final treat, we are giving away a few copies of Rory's book, Alchemy, The Magic of Original Thinking in a World of Mind-Numbing Conformity. It's excellent and I hugely recommend it. To win one, you simply need to go to Twitter and post a review of this show. And make sure to include the show link from aloadofbs.substack.com and copy me in at Daniel S.J. Ross so I know who you are. Now, enjoy the show. My final, final question, and I can't resist asking you this, is why did you spend, if I'm not mistaken, 24 hours in a Qatari prison? Uh, It's a very interesting case, actually, of a classic case of really bureaucratic misunderstanding. So I, I had very small electronic cigarettes, which I very briefly puffed on discreetly, on a flight that went London, uh, Doha, Doha, Jakarta. In the time I was in Jakarta, they introduced some new rule against e-cigarettes, which they hadn't had before. When I puffed on the thing, they said, no, you can't do that. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. And I put them away. And I thought, okay, that's the end of the matter. And then they came to me with a bit of paper, which said there were three checkboxes. And these were basically, this was a procedure which caused passengers to be arrested on landing and one of them was like causing a fracas one of them was like drunkenness or you know mental insanity causing a fracas and the third one was smoking on the plane and i said hold hold on a second i said this isn't really quite fair is it because i mean had i lit a marlboro light on the plane you know i you know i'd fully expect that to be treated as a you know, as a felony. But this is puffing on a tiny little electronic device for five seconds. It's not quite the same level of risk or danger. And they said, yes, but we haven't printed out the forms which include the electronic cigarette rule. So we've got to tick the smoking on a plane rule. I, I said, well, look, this isn't really fair because you're basically reporting me to the ground as someone who's lit a Marlboro light in the toilets, right? And I, I thought, oh, well, okay, I'll just get off the plane. I'll pay a fine. Of course, it was the weekend in Muslim countries because it was something like a Friday or a Saturday. I can't remember what day it was, but it was basically, you know, it was the weekend. And I ended up spending 24 hours in jail uh, waiting to be sentenced and fined before I was put on my return flight. It's an extraordinary thing because, one, I was hugely helped, actually, because there was another Brit in the jail. Now, all he'd done is had a very minor sotto voce. I mean, it almost was swore under his breath at one of the staff when they refused to serve him a fourth glass of wine. And he apologised in the stewardess. Nobody else overheard this. He, he just said something to himself, more or less, in her earshot. Oh, for fuck's sake, you know, you can sell me another glass, you know, but whatever. And he realised, I wouldn't have realised it. You know, because that, that's kind of, you can kind of swear under your breath on British Airways. But he realised, because he lived in the Middle East, that this was not acceptable. So he went and apologised to the crew member. And she then said, no, 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 it's fine. Don't worry, it's not a problem. But then he was brought one of these pieces of paper saying, causing a fracas on the plane. Now, since no one else on the plane was actually aware that any incident had occurred, I think this was a fairly uh, loose definition of fracas. 
It was very weird because the thing about being imprisoned is it's not an experience you can recreate in the imagination. The very fact that you lose complete power and control and autonomy over everything, your mobile phone's confiscated, my cravat was confiscated in case I hanged myself. You weren't allowed to take any books into the prison apart from the Quran that I didn't have a copy on me. You had to sign a load of forms in Arabic with no idea what you were signing at all. I mean, literally. You weren't allowed a phone call. And now, as it happened, the cop who was consigning me to the prison said, look, if you want to ring anybody, you better ring them now, because once you're in the jail, they'll confiscate your phone. So I had to ring my wife at four o'clock in the morning, UK time, and say what was happening. Without which, she would have just assumed I'd disappear. The plane would have landed. They would have said, no, he never boarded the plane in Doha. And my wife would have just assumed I'd gone AWOL in Doha or something. She would have had no clue for 24 hours where I was. And so what is fascinating about it, I I wouldn't go through it again willingly, but it's an experience which you can't imagine. You can only have it imposed on you. And for that reason, I I, I sort of... I sort of don't regret it in a way, because if one thing it's given me is an extraordinary appreciation of freedom. They always say, don't they, that a, um, a what is it, a conservative is a, uh, is a liberal who's been mugged and a libertarian is a conservative who's been arrested. The extent of appreciation it gives me for two things, one of which is freedom and second of which is the benefit of the doubt. Very interesting because I had a conversation about it that, that very same weekend with a vicar and he said, I think you realise now the importance of the Christian concept of forgiveness, which is, you know, essentially it's a degree of wiggle room in decision making. Because in fairness, okay, a lot of the people there said, the cop, in particular, a very nice guy. He said to me, um, he said, look, this is ridiculous. You know, you should just pay $50 and we put you on the next plane. There's no reason to imprison you. You know, there's a credit card machine over there. You could pay a set fine. Get back on the plane. This is a complete nonsense. But unfortunately, my hands are tied. There's nothing we can do. The bureaucratic process. And there were people in the prison, by the way, worth remembering. There were people in the prison who were there for basically having a girlfriend. There were people in the prison who were there because they bounced a check. And there were people in the prison, let's not forget this, okay, where there were people in the prison who were, say, Nepali, or they were Filipino. Now, I was conscious of the fact that, as it happened at the time, I was actually quite friendly with the current Minister of Defence in the UK. And I also imagined that, I don't know whether it's a High Commissioner or an Ambassador, to Qatar. But the British guy, the British diplomatic service is going to have a reasonable amount of leverage in getting me the hell out of there. So I knew at the very worst case scenario that I, you know, at the worst, I'd be there a week or 10 days. And at best, you know, the guy told me, look, this system basically works. The British guy who lived in Qatar, uh, you know, it'll be annoyingly slow, but it will work. And sure enough, they let us go uh, after 24 hours. But the, the people from Nepal, my God, I feel for them still. Because, you know, I don't know how much weight, how much whack the Nepali, you know, consulate or whatever it might be, or the uh, the embassy or whatever it might be, has in getting these people released. And I was conscious of the fact that, you know, Jesus, you know, if I felt powerless with this experience, imagine what it feels like for anybody else. Um, I've started reading David Graeber and I've started reading uh, Scott because I've become the anarchist thing of the extent to which bureaucracy is in a sense worse than tyranny in some interesting respects always fascinates me because when you get trapped in a bureaucracy, it's not that there's a nasty person doing nasty things to you. It's that there are a load of people who agree that your situation is ridiculous, but they can, and this frightens me with things like artificial intelligence. So I've become, nobody there, by the the way, I ought to say, I was treated incredibly reasonably. The conditions in the prison were perfectly perfectly civil. Um, The people were polite. There was absolutely no intimation of violence or threat. Uh, The people inside the prison were generally very pleasant. And 
the process worked. The problem wasn't with any of the people or any of the intent. It was simply that people were prisoners of a slightly ridiculous process. And it was in no one's interest to to deviate from that process. And so you had the classic case of where a bureaucracy goes wrong, which is it doesn't know how to deal with exceptions, so it kind of ends up punishing them. So, so the whole thing, the whole thing kind of fascinates the hell out of me, really, because so I had a similar experience, a much more minor one, which is for some bizarre reason, Amazon would only deliver things. I belong to Amazon Prime. It would only deliver things to me on Friday, Sunday, and Monday. And, and so I'd go online, and I couldn't find anything that was available for delivery tomorrow, or even d- d- available for delivery the next day. If I was shopping on Monday, it made shopping on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday actually largely useless. So I ring up Amazon and say, "Look, I've repeatedly had this problem." And they say, yes, that's strange. We can't understand it. And then I realized the only person who, I don't know what the heck, whether it was some experiment that I was part of, whether it was just a complete glitch. And I realized that the only person with the power to solve my problem was probably in Seattle, Washington. He was 4,000 miles away. His Amazon stock had vested, so he was worth $30 million. So his incentive to actually solve my problem was probably not all that acute, to be absolutely honest. You know, some guy in the UK. And I suddenly realized, you know, with a shop, you can argue with somebody. With a bureaucracy or with a techno-bureaucracy. Now, in the end, what I had to do is experiment writing my own address in about seven different ways. And I found that by writing my address in a totally stupid order, Amazon returned to seven days a week service. And they kept saying to me things like, yeah, but um, some people, we don't, we don't actually offer the full delivery service to everybody in the country. I said, I live half a mile outside the M25, okay? It's the dense, most densely populated region in bloody Europe. Please don't tell, you know, if I lived in the Outer Hebrides, I'd go, this is a bit of a pisser, but I can understand what's going on. This is just absurd. This is your mistake. And nobody, you know, Amazon is, you know, I'm not going to denigrate their customer service, which is normally pretty good. But the level of the individual anomaly, even Amazon, is terrible. Yes, both examples show us, uh, highlight a sense of powerlessness in as a small cog in, in a bigger machine. And funnily enough, you touched on the on the prison example. It's something that I've mulled over intermittently, something perhaps of the occasional nightmare. But it's a curiosity as well. And I, I, I totally sympathize with your lack of regret for the experience, not that you would I'd never go through it again. I'd never go through it again, particularly with that level of uncertainty and lack of contact with the outside world. I, I mean, I worry that had the Brit not been there, I might have gone slightly insane. Fortunately, the Brit had lived in Qatar. He was able to explain what was happening because I wasn't sure, is this just a shakedown where they're trying to extract? It wasn't. There was nothing corrupt about the whole thing. It was bureaucratic, not corrupt. But I genuinely couldn't understand what was happening. Because they kept saying to me, don't worry, we'll put you on the plane, we'll just find you. And then the next thing I knew, I was beside two soldiers with rifles in the back of a large vehicle heading away from the airport. Now, what the hell is going on here? Now, had the Brits not been in there, the chance that even in a 24-hour period I would have gone a bit Midnight Express, you know, I probably would have held up, but it was not negligible. Yep. But the the Brit who was in there with me was basically able to say, no, this is how it happens. I, I know this because I've lived here. And I basically went, okay, well, you, you're reassuring me. Without him, uh, you know, I might have gone a bit doolally, to be absolutely honest. Very, very yeah. interesting. Uh, what's well, also it's, interesting it's, is the extent to which the uncertainty is vastly worse than the actual 
uh, conditions themselves. That, that's exactly what I was going to say. We won't perhaps not digress into this, but of course it reminds one of the of the Transport for London uh, underground platform mm. digital signage example of once you put up how long the next train is due to arrive in, everyone on the platform suddenly feels massively reassured and relaxed, knowing at least that even if you have to wait seven minutes, so be it, but you know when the thing is going to come. But you see, they have very great difficulty getting funding for bus information because their metrics are all about speed and punctuality, not about customer satisfaction. And so Making the case for making people happy is much harder than making the case for, for making trains a little bit faster, which no one gives a shit about. Yeah. No one gives exactly. a shit about three minutes either way. I mean, it annoys me that railway companies are punished for arriving three and a half minutes late into London because I go, look, nobody plans their day to that level of Swiss precision. Don't get me wrong. If the train's 10 minutes, 15 minutes late, someone might be late for a meeting. Three minutes, forget about it. You shouldn't be punishing these people. Obviously, it's good that they maintain punctual services because they're a knock-on effect. So I'm not being totally naive about this. But from a passenger point of view, the three-minute distinction, assuming the information on the train is adequate, is, to be honest, uh, neither here nor there. Yes, exactly. Now, Rory, and this is I think this we... is called, by the way, in AI, it's called the alignment problem, which is uh-huh. how you align model metrics with actual, with human, with the things that humans care about. Because we don't have SI units for uncertainty, regret, status, anxiety. We don't have, I did suggest an SI unit for regret, which is the best, named after Pete Best, which is the unit of regret you experience through nearly being in the Beatles, but not quite. And so if I just miss a train, I might experience a Millie Best or a Pico Best, which is a small unit of regret, you see. that, That is very amusing. That's a good thought. Now, I'm conscious... Of time, we could we could go on, but I'm I think Rory, we should pause there, and I'm going to thank you hugely for joining me today. It's been so entertaining, and I've learned an enormous amount. And perhaps we can do it again uh, another time and pick up where we left off. But only to say thank you, thank you so much. I'd be delighted any time. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you ever so much.